My name is Sean McCann. I'm conducting a series of uh, interviews at the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, which this year is in uh, Florida, in uh, Orlando, on behalf of the European Hematology Association. And I have with me Dr. Kim Smith-Whiteley, if I have pronounced that correctly, mm -hmm. and she is director of the Sickle Cell Disease Program at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. You're very welcome, and thank you for coming along. So, um, well, the first thing I will say is an observation we already discussed, is that since I've been going to this meeting for about 50 years now, um, it is noticeable how many females there are in hematology. Because when I was a fellow at the University of Minnesota, I mean, females in hematology were very, very rare, occasionally in laboratory hematology. So is that a fair comment, do you think? I think it's a very fair comment, particularly in pediatric hematology, okay. where there were already a surge of women in the pediatrics field. So it's just blossomed in okay. pediatric hematology oncology. So you think the days of the male dominance are over? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> is that a good see. or a bad thing? <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. Kim is an expert in sickle cell disease in pregnancy, which is a, a pretty tricky subject. So um, there are many different aspects to it, uh, aspects to the mother and also to the uh, fetus or the baby. Um, and in view of the, of the pathobiology of sickle cell disease, it's not surprising that there are many complications. Um, I, uh, the ones I noted were perinatal mortality, premature labor, fetal growth retardation, acute painful crises, um, spontaneous miscarriages. Is that a reasonable sort of spectrum of things you see? No, I think you're no. exactly right. Yes, the underlying pathophysiology of sickle cell disease, as you know, is not only the vaso-occlusion and the endothelial damage and the vasculopathy that occurs subsequent to that, but also the inflammatory state, the prothrombotic state. So imagine the placental infarcts and what that will do um, to the fetus. And I think that's why we see so much growth retardation and premature labor. Then think about the endothelial damage and the pre-existing kidney disease and all the other end organ damage going into pregnancy. That's why we see the hypertensive syndromes and the maternal mortality. So it's unfortunate, but yes, it's a perfect storm um, of uh, a pro-thrombotic pro-inflammatory state of pregnancy in a condition that has those two features as a chronic feature. Okay, which of those, if you had to pick one, would you say mm -hmm. is the most feared or one that you have most difficulty in managing? I think that probably it's um, really the vaso-occlusion. I think that that ongoing process during pregnancy um, gives the frequency of acute pain episodes that leads to the acute chest syndrome is a complication of the pain and the inflammation. And then that leads to mortality. Um, we also know that the kidney disease plays a role as well in the hypertensive syndromes. So I think the vaso-occlusion, if we could fix that part of it, that would eliminate the frequency of sickle cell-related complications and the impact of the infarctions on the placenta and subsequently the harm to the fetus. Now, I've been looking through the Royal College of, of um, what do they call themselves, obstetricians and gynecologists, yes. who have a very weighty sort of guidelines. I'm, I'm very much against guidelines, Brain by top the way. Number 61. <laughs> I refer to it frequently. <laughs> uh, it seems rather um, idealistic, to put it mildly, if I may say so. One thing I, I did pick up is they, they're very much against the use of pethidine 
as as an analgesic. Could you expand on that? Because that was something totally new to me. Well, I think it's a it's a multifactorial. I think that they are um, reticent because of um, some of the end organ effects, be it whether it's liver or whether it's kidney, um, that that seems to be part of an issue. The other thing is that in the U.S., we really um, downplay um, the need for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents like ibuprofen because of the effect on the development of the placenta and the tendency to get into problems in the first trimester and then in the last trimester of pregnancy. So I think that it's very difficult to manage pain in pregnant women because you're avoiding a certain class of analgesics because of what could happen to preterm labor and other impacts. But then if you undertreat the pain, then it leads to acute chest syndrome and other complications. So it's a very slippery slope. Right. They mentioned seizures as a complication. Yes. That again is something I hadn't heard about before. Is that a real or? You know, I don't know. When you look at these studies, there's so many moving pieces. And I think about eclampsia and preeclampsia and seizures. So I'm not sure in the context that these medications aren't used that you're really combining multiple comorbid states. So it's hard to necessarily blame one agent when there's so other many other factors that could be playing a role right. in the development of seizures. Right. Okay, so what's your approach then to acute pain in, in pregnant ladies? Yes, I think that one of um, the mainstays is to try to prevent pain from ever occurring. And this is where we come into problems. Um, the Royal College of obstetrics and gynecology, uh, obstetricians and gynecologists recommends um, a thoughtful approach using opioids. And I really have to agree with that um, because of the need to treat pain without impacting the fetus. Unfortunately, though, as you know, um, opioids in pregnancy intermittently can lead to neonatal abstinence syndrome. And the newborn after they withdraw from the opioids. We're finding that the intermittent use may be not as much as the daily use. So okay. hopefully we can be more aware to monitor the newborn for these problems, but to not withhold opioids from women with sickle cell disease in pain. Uh, we're really, there are very few other agents that you can use. Right. That's a fairly nebulous answer. You're not really. Right. Well, so <laughs> I mean, do you use opioids or absolutely not? Absolutely, we that? use opioids. Yeah. I think that one of the things that my bias is is to avoid acute pain, and using, unfortunately, transfusion therapy is the only thing that we have to do to reduce acute pain episodes in somebody who's going through them frequently in pregnancy. Then when you introduce transfusions, you introduce a whole host of problems with red cell alloimmunization, hemolytic disease of the newborn and the fetus. So again, not the greatest answer. However, I did see one study um, out of a French group that is using nocturnal oxygen supplementation in order to reduce the need for transfusion therapy in pregnancy uh, for women with sickle cell disease. So I'm hoping we'll see a larger study, um, maybe even a randomized controlled trial come out of that, and maybe 
the use of nocturnal oxygen will change the pain frequency and the need for transfusions to prevent pain in these women. Right. Well, one of the, the issues that the, 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 the uh, guidelines bring up is, you know, we should always uh, you know, talk to kids or women before they get pregnant. I mean, that's not really realistic, is it, in the group you're dealing with? Or am I off, off the no, wall? No, <laughs> I think you're accurate in the fact that we have so many unintended pregnancies. Um, I think that this varies um, worldwide, but definitely in the U.S., it is pretty common. It's particularly I yes. hear the rate, I'm afraid to say. Still. Yes. So one of the things that I try to do in my practice is once there's one pregnancy, really to be an advocate um, for changing the course of the next pregnancy. However, Are you I, successful? Have new, I have a new plan. <laughs> and my new plan is that while we're transitioning children from pediatric institutions to adult institutions, given the rate of teenage pregnancy in the U.S. as well, why not start educating about a reproductive life plan as you're starting to prepare them for transition? Right. So just when they reach that reproductive age group, start educating about the morbidity and mortality associated with pregnancy. Warn them about the genetic outcomes that could be possible and their potential for having a child with sickle cell disease if that's something that they could be better prepared for or choose not to have. So I think that starting very early about what the risks are associated with pregnancy at least lets that young person know once they become pregnant that they really need to get to an obstetrician pretty quickly. Right. Are you meeting opposition to this plan? I am, usually by the <laughs> surprise, parents. Surprise. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, uh, because this is a very difficult topic to have with a teenager. Yes. Um, a topic to discuss with a teenager. Parents want to protect um, their children, um, and they feel that some of these discussions are inappropriate and young teenagers. However, I think that when you combine it with the plan for transitioning, from a pediatric to an adult program, it's a rite of passage. This is a good thing. You're going, you're well enough that you're gonna grow up to graduate from this program. And in that process, let's prepare you for other things that you're gonna face in adult life. And with that approach, I'm hoping that I will not get as much resistance. Okay, well, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> um, the other emotive area is the use of hydroxyurea. Can you just give me a feel for how difficult that is? Because <laughs> it does work if it's taken. It does, and it prevents it, acute pain. It prevents acute chest episodes and reduces the need for transfusion. So in women with sickle cell disease, we withhold that very important therapy. And we withhold it because animal studies demonstrate that hydroxyurea is a potential teratogen. However, we have many case reports that... Um, discuss women who have used hydroxyurea therapy either because of a malignancy or because of sickle cell disease during their pregnancy or become pregnant while on hydroxyurea and not had negative outcomes for the fetus. So I think we really need more information before we say to a young person, stop taking hydroxyurea two months before you intend to get pregnant, stay off of an hydroxyurea the entire time and oh, if you decide to breastfeed your child, which we recommend, then you have to stay off your hydroxyurea while breastfeeding as well. So we really yeah. have to get better data before we 
take uh, a... A definite stand, yeah. So you, you retreat a rock in a hard place, yes, really. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. So locally, we have many obstetricians that restart hydroxyurea in the third trimester of pregnancy, where growth of the fetus is not as much of an issue. And I think we need to gather all of these cases, put them under one umbrella, either as a registry or a surveillance system, and really get good information. The French are reporting here in uh, abstract um, 1027 on Saturday okay. night on four women that used hydroxyurea throughout their pregnancy with no adverse outcomes yeah. to the fetus. So I think we need to gather more data. Okay, okay well, thank you. It's a complicated area, and I, I, I say, as I, I wish you were. Just one last thing. Um, uh, after delivery, the college recommends low molecular weight heparin for six weeks after vaginal delivery. Is that accepted as being normal practice? Or? I wish it were accepted as being normal practice. One of the biggest complications at delivery and postpartum is um, venothromboembolism. I can just give you an anecdote of a teenage mother who um, went through a ten twin pregnancy, twin gestation, beautifully. Um, and at the time of delivery, developed shortness of breath and had a saddle embolus and was in the ICU for 10 weeks. Um, so I strongly recommend um, management of veno-occlusive complications, particularly around delivery, judiciously. Of course, you don't want to start something that's going to promote postpartum hemorrhage. Obviously not. <laughs> that's a slippery slope as well. But um, I think anything that you can do um, with compression stockings to get them through the first 24 hours and starting um, a low molecular weight heparin agent is advisable. I strongly agree with that recommendation. Well, thank you very much indeed. As I say, uh, you've got a difficult, a difficult job to do and your hair will go gray eventually. <laughs> uh, so for those of you who are investigators or clinicians looking after women with sickle cell disease who are pregnant, you can see that there are many, many problems uh, which remain to be resolved. Mm -hmm.